So many things have ruined my childhood So I go online to bitch and cry It feels like all of Hollywood is up against me They even made Optimus Fly New versions of what I grew up with Are being remade, rebooted and retried My adolescence is under attack now I think that a part of me has died Aliens, uh -huh, uh -huh. Predators, uh -huh, uh -huh. Marvel, uh -huh, uh -huh. DC, uh -huh, uh -huh. maybe it doesn't all quite stay. Okay, well, except maybe for that Jar Jar Binks. Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast ruined my childhood. I'm Phil Durasmo, and with me is Eric Walensky. Eric, say hey to our friends out there. Rebellions are built on hope. The Empire has the means of mass destruction. The rebellion does not. A Death Star? This is nonsense. What reason would my father have to lie? What benefit would it bring him? To lure our forces into a final battle, to destroy us once and for all. Risk everything. Based on what? The testimony of a criminal. The dying words of her father, an Imperial scientist. But oh, don't forget the Imperial pilot. My father gave his life so that we may have a chance to defeat this. So you've told us. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now! Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah! What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. There is no hope. I say we fight! I say the rebellion is finished! I'm sorry, Jim. Without the full support of the Council, the odds are too great. Rebellions are built on hope, everybody. We are going to dive back into arguably Eric and my favorite franchise. And we're going to talk about the first Star Wars story that was produced outside of the main Star Wars timeline in film. Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So we've talked a lot on this show about Star Wars, about the way that the prequels affected us, the way that Force Awakens and Last Jedi affected us. And, uh, you know, we also talked about The Mandalorian. We haven't touched the two different branch-offs, the Star Wars stories that have come out. So this is our first foray into those two. So Eric, we we normally talk about our feelings of the franchise and, and the ways that it affected our childhood, but the listeners know that full well at this point if they've been tuning into our shows. I think we've done three or four Star Wars episodes. In, we've done four, mm -hmm. yeah, four in, in full. So Eric, tell me what you thought about when they first announced that they were branching off of the episodic format of Star Wars into this new foray of Star Wars stories 
when they first announced they were doing it and announced that Rogue One was going to be their first. Well, I was curious, certainly, because I love everything Star Wars, and I've read all the books. I've read uh, some of the books that are fill-ins uh, for different gaps in history. I was a big fan of uh, Shadows of the Empire back in the day, which was uh, stepping outside mm-hmm. of the the trilogies and giving us a little bit more insight into what Luke and the other rebels were doing in between uh, Empire and Jedi in their quest to find Han Solo, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, I've read all the comics even back in the 80s that kind of were filling the blankers in between Star Wars and Empire and Empire and Jedi and then post-Jedi stuff. So when it comes to lore that goes outside of the the, the main movies, the trilogies, uh, I'm 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 always curious. I'm I'm always excited about that. The thing though specifically about Rogue One that I was not thrilled about was that it was telling us how we got the Death Star plans. That seemed to me to be an insignificant enough detail um, that I thought was just kind of covered in the movies. Yeah, well, do they even say in, in A New Hope how they got the plans? I know in Return of the Jedi... They say how they got the plans of the second Death Star. Well, that's true. Many, yes, many Bothans died to bring us this information. But no, I guess you're right. I guess just Princess Leia just had the plans. Um, I So let me backtrack a little again, because I do go outside of Star Wars for other stuff. In the radio drama, of the NPR radio drama of Star Wars... There are three episodes before the actual Star Wars as we know it starts. There's an episode with Luke on Tatooine, and then there's two episodes, one for sure, I can't remember, but I think two of Princess Leia and how she kind of uh, got involved with the uh, operation to get these plans. And it was just a very simple... um, these these spies had broken in, got the plans, found Princess Leia, were able to get them to her, and then she got them on the ship. But then she was able to hold the Imperials off just long enough. But then the Imperials got suspicious, and then were like, "Wait a minute, this 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 couldn't have been a coincidence." And like mm-hmm. even Darth Vader shows up in the scene and is like, "Wait a minute," and then Princess Leia gives him some like political jargon which holds him off for a minute and he basically says, yeah, yeah, we'll do this legal. Sure. Sure. We'll follow the rules. And then as soon as she blasts off, that's when fate. So, mm-hmm. so in my head, I guess how they got the plans wasn't kind of insignificant. Like, Hey, she got them. Like there was somebody stole them. There was a spy. Yep. I was, I was fine enough with that, I guess. Sure. When I, when I first heard it, I, I I had done some reading that you had told me I should, and all of that became legends. So I was kind of ready for this new interpretation of what could have happened in the new canon timeline that Disney set up. So when they announced it, I was like, "That's that's interesting. I'll I'll take a look at it. I don't know if I'll like it as much because there won't be any Jedi, and 
I need my my saber porn, but I'll <laughs> I'll check it out, obviously. And I don't know that I was like you said, like super excited about getting this this story about getting Death Star plans, but I was intrigued enough to say, why wouldn't we want to tell this story? And it could be a really, really good intro to a new part of the Star Wars lore. So I was I was for it. I wasn't like all in, but I was definitely more for it than like laissez-faire about it. What I do find interesting, or what I did find interesting about this was who they announced to direct it. And that was um, Gareth Edwards, who I really, really respected his first movie that he put out, which was a very small, low-budget film called Monsters. I don't know if you've ever seen Monsters. Uh, with Fred Savage? No, no, <laughs> not Fred Savage Monsters. Uh, just a British science fiction horror film that Gareth Edwards wrote and directed, and it was his first. It was his directorial debut, oh, um, no, and it I'm was about. So definitely, I would say definitely check it out. I think it's free on Prime, but it's a film where um, these monsters have kind of taken over parts of earth after i think uh a nasa probe that was out in the universe crash lands in mexico and so maybe it's not they take over the earth but they take over mexico for sure and basically there's a big wall uh funnily enough between mexico and america and these people that are trapped in mexico are trying to get to the united states to get away from the monsters um and it is a really, really good movie that is kind of like a study of grief and loss and tragedy and adversity. And I'm sure, you know, now talking about the wall and Mexico and America probably has something to do with immigration too. But um, there's not... What, what I really liked about the movie is that Gareth Edwards directed it very focused on character and subtly about the monsters. The monsters are always a threat and there are scenes where they, uh, you see parts of them, but it's not until very close to the end until you see full monsters. And it was really, I thought, I thought it was a really good way to do a very small budget film like this. Now then Gareth Edwards went on to direct Godzilla in which he did the exact same thing where you saw Godzilla for seven minutes of a Godzilla movie, which we've already talked about how I didn't like that. But I was willing to go on the monsters side of Gareth Edwards over the Godzilla side of Gareth Edwards when he was announced to take on Rogue One. Long story short, I was intrigued. So then the film came out, and what did, what did you think of the first time you saw it? I know you went to see it probably opening weekend in theaters. How did you feel about the film? How did you feel about the characters? How did you feel about their mission? Uh, I didn't really like it when I first walked away from it. I I was like, ah, it was okay. Um, I, I, I it was too uh, too much hopping around at the very beginning, where we went 
from this planet to that planet to this planet. And, and we're introducing a lot of characters really fast. And they didn't, in my opinion, do enough, a good enough job of like really making sure you, you got who was who and why they were doing what they were doing. And I really felt like the first 15 minutes was just too much of a whirlwind um, mm-hmm. considering we're watching a movie about how the Death Star plans are getting stolen. You know what I mean? Yep. And and maybe maybe part of that is just on me where I feel like I know so much about Star Wars that it should just click. And this, I felt like, maybe because it was such new territory that my own fandom was getting in my way. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this isn't right. This is, this, I don't get what they're doing. This, this isn't how star Wars movies go. And I, and I, and I know I had to fight through a little bit of that first. And then once I settled in and I'm like, okay, I get it. He's the, that's who Andor is. That's who, okay. I understand. Um, but I also, I didn't care for that. It looked really cool when the ship came sweeping in and the death troopers came out. But mm-hmm. then I guess I just didn't believe that whole scene on the planet. Like that to me seemed like I get what they were trying to do with that, but it, it came off as awkward. Um, yeah. When Krennic was talking to Galen. Um, yeah. Galen and it seemed like they were trying to be polite and like but obviously not being polite and then that to me felt like they were just staging that for us to see you know to give us this exposition because like really if Krennic had to have tracked Galen across the galaxy and somehow found him on this little farm planet the guy who's responsible for finishing this incredible weapon of mass destruction. And he's all like, ah, here you are, Galen. You'll just come back. You'll just be, oh, we'll bring your family. It'll be like it was. Like, clearly this guy yeah. left the Death Star <laughs> somehow. Yep. Or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and you don't wake up one day and your, your head scientist is just gone? I mean, he didn't. He he just seemed weird about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I completely agree with you about the jumping around in the beginning, because you're right. It's very jarring. The first ten ish to fifteen minutes, maybe even less, it might even be like the first eight to ten minutes, is going through four different scenes. And a 15-year jump in time. So we start right. like on the planet, like you just said, um, where Krennic comes in. Uh, Lamu, I think, is the planet. Krennic comes in to the Urso family, kills Urso's wife. Jin hides. And then Saw Gerrera, who a lot of fans freaked out about because he is from the, the um, Clone Wars and Rebels TV shows. <clears throat> Um, but Saw Gerrera comes and saves Jin, and then we jump 15 years in the future, and this defector pilot from the Imperial forces somehow gets down to the planet that Saw Gerrera's on to give him information from Galen Erso, who is still 
against building the Death Star. Uh, and then so he goes and gets captured by Saw's people. And then we jump to Cassian and introduce him on the planet where he kills some stormtroopers, but then he also kills one of his informants or co-spies or something. So we're supposed <laughs> to we're supposed to I like that. Yeah, co-spy. <laughs> we're supposed to immediately care about this guy because he kills a friend? Like I immediately was was off put by Diego Luna's character because of what he did. And and I understand he did it so that he could get away and continue to try to stop the Imperials. It's one of those like what's more important, the one or the many? And so I get why he did it, but you don't gotta kill the guy. You just tell him to go run away somewhere else. No, he'll he was be limping. Tortured. I know he he was hurt, but still, I, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Put a bad taste just, in my mouth for this care for it, this guy. It did. It really did. Right up, right from the get go. Like we want to establish, he's a spy. He's working with the rebels, but he's also a killer. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll do whatever it takes, which sort of makes him a little bit. You know, no different than Saw, the way Saw was right, kind of depicted. Portrayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then after Cassian, we jump to Jin, or we jump to the rebels, and then we jump to Jin being held captive, and then the movie really starts. They break Jin out, and now we've gone probably less than fifteen minutes, gone through five or six different locations and meeting all these characters, to now get to the movie and 15 years right and 15 years but once we got to that part when they broke Jin out and k2so the reprogrammed droid who is just a great great character in this film played by alan tudyk who is a disney mainstay once they break her out and the pacing of the movie finally figured out what it wanted to be i was all in uh, I started to like Cassian and or more as the movie went on. Um, I loved K2SO. And now that we're starting to get to know Jin and her reluctance to join the rebellion, plus the family trauma from when she was a kid, like I, I was on board. After my first viewing, I really liked it. And you said you didn't. And as time went on, I've grown to actually love it. I really think this is the best movie that's um, a Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi. And that might be bold to say, um, because I really love Force Awakens too, um, but I like Rogue One better than Force Awakens the more I watch it. And so I just watched it again last night, and yeah, the first 15 minutes were still jarring even last night, but everything after that was an amazing ride with great character development true purpose and it ended so satisfactory i do like it more now um because liz really liked it the first time and Mm -hmm. then she was like watch it again she goes this is like a star wars movie i'll actually watch again i was like all right so we watched it again whenever it was available on streaming and i was like you know what i do like it a little better um now that i got a better understanding of what they're trying to do the the jumpy 15 minutes it's just unfortunately for me and i don't know if you want to say this is nitpicky or not or if i have valid points here but 
it's well, a lot when of, it comes to star wars you always have valid points so give it to me well it's a lot of plot convenience theater honestly mm-hmm. the guy who's building the death star is friends with this whatever you want to call him not right wing or left wing but far crazed faction mm-hmm. uh rebel leader yeah um who is notorious for not being able to be found anywhere and the imperials don't even know how to stop this guy or get a hold of this guy and and then his daughter is raised by him for all practical purposes but then again somewhere in that 15 years they have a falling out and then she disappears so it's another layer of rescued by this guy for the plot point to, I guess, include him. Like you said, fans freaked out that he was in it. So it's like, oh, wow, it's Saw Gerrera. See, I hadn't actually seen him in Clone Wars at this point. So I didn't really realize that he was part of that. Um, so to me, it was just another guy they created. And then it just, just everything about the movie just seemed like, like I said, just plot convenience theater that they're able to find Jin Erso, who's been going under all these aliases in this backwater imperial prison planet, but they want her because she knows Saw Gerrera because Saw Gerrera supposedly has this imperial pilot that somehow managed to get a message to them and then they find her so she can lead them to him and then when they get there, it just turns out that the message is from her father, mm-hmm. and I'm reuniting with the guy who raised me once my father disappeared, and he's kind of crazed and doesn't really trust me. Right. And I, it just seemed all like all everything Saw did to me just seemed like. You're just painting him as a one-dimensional. Nope, he's crazy. That's why he wouldn't trust the pilot. Nope, he wouldn't. It's it's like this all could have been solved very quickly in the in the beginning there about the message and everything. If she would have just taken that thumb drive mm-hmm. instead, like she just lets the building get destroyed around her. Like if she had that thumb drive, she could have shown the rebels and been like, "See, look, there you go." Yep. I, I guess it just felt messy to me. None of that felt organic. I am. I, I get it. But it's a movie that needed to move. And I forgive. <laughs> I forgive some of that because it needed to all take place in a week. <laughs> I well, it, exactly. And and that. Uh, well, let's just jump to the whole. The thing that just really puts me out of this movie is that, again, to plot convenience theater, Galen Erso built a flaw in this machine so small that the only way anybody in the entire galaxy could take advantage of it is if they knew it was there after analyzing the plans and the the events that had to unfold exactly right for the right people to get those plans 
etc., etc., etc. It's it. I don't like that he built a flaw in there. That that to me is just ridiculous. Yeah. That that almost to me undermines the whole point of the first Star Wars movie, which was just simply after an analysis of the plans provided by Princess Leia, we found this. It's a small thermal exhaust port. Like in my head in Star Wars, all the top rebel scientists and commanders and and technicians, they all poured over these plans. And they're like gosh guys the thing is impenetrable we are dead and then one guy goes if you could hear me out guys if you could and i know it's a long shot but just listen if you could somehow get one of our x-wing pilots i know an x-wing i know it's tough you get an X-Wing pilot to go down the trench and get a proton torpedo down that chute. I know it sounds crazy, but it's our only chance. And if they really wanted to mount an attack around that premise, and enough of them said, well, you know, it's going to take a hell of a shot and a hell of a pilot and a hell of a coincidence, you know, even Han mm -hmm. Solo summed it all up. He listened to the whole plan, and he is like, sounds like suicide, right? That, to me, felt more like a new hope, not, oh, this guy built it. Like, that, that just, to me, undermines everything about getting the plans and finding this one-in-a-million shot. Again, Han Solo, great shot, kid. One-in-a-million, not, way to go, Galen Erso, for building this one-in-a-bazillion chance for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. It does. Um, but I they also explain it away. <laughs> they explain it away in that he had to do it in a way that they couldn't figure out that he was doing it under their nose. So I both get it from what you're saying, and I also get that the plans for the Death Star couldn't say with a big neon sign and arrow pointing at this part of the plans exhaust port here exhaust port here eat at joe's exhaust port here it had to be subtle it, enough that the imperials couldn't track it and it had to be subtle enough that the the best minds of the rebellion could figure it out but so that to me one in a million I, shot though yeah it should have been like hey we can make this shot on a average tuesday with the last guy in the rebellion who was a farmer yesterday yeah that should have been what happened? But it of just create it, it again. It's it's like you said. Well, the movie has to happen. The story has to go. Well, that, that you're making a story. It, it it's like you're, ha you're you're creating drama for the sake of drama that just doesn't isn't believable. Sure. It, that was only done to have the whole backstory. Like I did build this giant thing of destruction, but I did it because. I did it to save you, Stardust. You know? <laughs> yeah. I did all of this so you could stay protected with Saw Gerrera, which it turns out you had a falling out with him. So hopefully you made your way through the rest of the universe by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like... It's, hopefully you're it's still just, alive. Like the whole reason they had him build it was to make the guy who made the Death Star sympathetic that, well, look, but I was building this one in a million chance. Yeah. Like there's, there's no way in the world... 
yes, it had to be subtle, but that the subtlety almost makes it stupid. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. I went with it. And I still, even when I when I watch it, when I watched it last night, I went with it. I, And then the other big plot convenience theater point is it's a, a rainy day on this backwoods asteroid planet. And right when they decide to go do their reconnaissance, that's when Krennic shows up and decides to march everybody out of the protected facility yeah. and put them on the landing platform yeah. right when the assassin is climbing the bit come on mm-hmm. right when they call in the x-wing airstrike come on yep that is stupid <laughs> that is stupid that's that's all done just so you can have the movie happen and it's yeah. not an organic story it, it just now i will say watching some x-wings fly in and like do a raid like that? Wow, that's something we've never seen before. That yeah. was awesome. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super cool to like see the rebellion kind of in action, just like in in Mandalorian, you know, where you see like the X wings pop up in a couple episodes, like out there patrolling or whatever. Yeah. That's cool. That that's that is where I think we are taking ourselves outside of Star Wars, and we're seeing. Not the uh, the saber porn, as you say, but we're we're watching the real boots on the ground. Here's the real people who were out there, you know, with no magical powers, doing what they could do. Right. And I thought that was really neat. I thought it was super cool when the fleet shows up to uh, I forget the name of the planet there at the end, the big battle, and they're there to help. You know, you've got Akbar. Um, commanding the uh the ships well, so that's like, a, that wasn't akbar or not akbar but radis yeah and, it, and the planet they're, was scarif scarif mm-hmm. yeah and there that was all neat and watching the coordination and all that kind of stuff and then seeing yavin outside of the original movie that was super that to me was you yeah. know like vintage vintage porn if you will yep like, and did, wow, did, did they not get cool. the perfect person to play mon mothma i mean gosh she looked yeah. exactly oh. like the original actress. Oh, so so good. It was it was really neat to see a lot of that. And and I really did enjoy that of it. It's just parts of the story just were manufactured just for that. Yeah. And it it just that's that's where I just lose it. I just Yep. Like every movie. Like a new hope. Han and Chewie are just in the cantina when they go to find the right you know to find people to help them smuggle and you know it's all within the same minute that or within the same couple hours that leia has been captured with the after she gets the death star plans like it's all just plot convenience theater it all happens and it's all happening because it's a movie and they need to move the plot along and this i do completely get the landing pad on whatever planet they were in bringing everybody out um during that scene yeah that was yadu on yadu that was a little too much and then krennic you know all of the scientists that work on the death star are in this one place and for some reason they're all loyal to the empire except for galen or so but krennic kills all of the ones that are loyal to the empire 
except Galen Erso. That didn't make any right. sense. Didn't right. make any sense at all. But um, it, to take a step back to to Jeddah, the planet where we meet uh, two of the best characters in the film, we have the blind spiritual warrior of Chirrut and his mercenary buddy Baze. They are awesome. I love the two of them as characters. I love their relationship. I love Chirrut's connection to the Force. Um, I love how Baze is the exact opposite, where he is just one. Of, he's like the Han Solo, the non-believer, until the end when he sees Chirrut actually do something too astonishing to believe. Um, it's I loved the two of them. They were probably my two favorite characters in the film aside from k2so um so anyway just to talk about it, we pick them up and they become part of this ragtag crew um and so they're along the ride all the way to the end on scarif which is like the most visual ple- visually pleasing part of the movie where we have the walkers on the beach and the x-wings flying over and the um the U-wing. Wait, what's the new one that they showed in this film? Um, I don't remember. Gosh, it's the one where the wings are forward, and then as it flies, the wings come out and go, you know, almost perpendicular to the to the craft. I don't. It's a very cool looking new um, new vehicle that we see. But I really, really liked that. This film was about characters that we all knew going into it weren't going to survive. We knew it. They had to. They had to die. Uh, Because none of them are in the rest of the franchise. So getting invested with these characters and getting attached to them the way that, like, I did, and maybe you did, and a lot of other people that like the movie did, it was always looming in the back of my mind that they weren't getting out of it. But the emotional toll that I took when Bodhi died and then when Chirrut was blown up, he walked through all the blaster fire to turn on that receiver so that they could get the communications out to the fleet. And he starts walking back and saying, I'm one with the force and the force is with me. And he then a thermal detonator blows him up. And then Bayes going to his side after seeing him survive walking through the blaster fire and now saying, I'll avenge you. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. And then him just decimating stormtroopers. And then him eventually dying. Just, just hit me. And then of course, um, Andor and Jin and K2SO on their little mission to get the Stardust plans, it was really, really cool to see them go through it and K2SO die, and then the two of them at the end on the beach just getting, you know, enveloped by the the blast of the Death Star. It was it it was emotionally draining for me to watch the last, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the film. But wasn't that the Imperial Library? Did they not need anything else? They just 
Death Start it? <laughs> that made no sense. That was the Imperial Library. That wasn't just the Death Star plan base. No, you're right. But and to go the... to go back real quick. So so when you said like a new hope has coincidences too. See this this is plot convenience in Rogue One. Star Wars is literally the story. See Obi-Wan and Luke weren't going into the cantina looking for the one in a million pilot who happens to be there. They were looking for any pilot. And there were lots of characters in there. Obi-Wan Kenobi, as we know now, at the time he's just old Ben, is savvy enough to know you go to a place like this, you're going to find what you need. If mm-hmm. Han Solo and Chewie weren't there, they could have got the guy that uh, that that uh, introduced Ben to Chewie, that he was a pilot too. He actually gets backstory later on. But there were plenty of people in there with mm-hmm. spaceships. But would they have been the pilot with the eventual heart of gold. But that doesn't matter because at that point you're just, that's just the story. And that develops that you see that there's a softer side to this rogue. Now that's not coincidence. That's not just so the story can happen. That is organic storytelling. You find a pilot who, you know, and then Mm -hmm. it makes sense that yes, they do find princess Leia because they went to Alderaan's coordinates because that's where they were going, and the Death Star was still in the area, and that's why they got trapped. It wasn't a one in a million chance. The Death Star was still in the area. Mm-hmm. So that that all is organic storytelling. And then they get dragged in there, and then when they blast their way in, and Obi-Wan, oh, I got to deactivate the, oh, okay. And then R2-D2, when he's bringing up the plans, and he's just looking through the rest of the Death Star, and it's like, he keeps repeating, she's here. Who's here? Oh, he found out Princess Leia's. Oh, really? That's who this whole thing is about. And so then they go blast their way in. See, that's all great storytelling. And then at the end of the movie, yeah, he's the pilot with the heart of gold. But you don't know that until the very end. And technically, if you read some extra stuff, which you don't need to read, but it's actually Chewbacca who it's his heart of gold that right. convinces Han right. that we need to go back and help these people and do the right thing here, Han, because probably he's telling them if the empire wins, you know what the galaxy's like, it's going to get worse for us. So even if there was a selfish motivation there, like, Hey, we can't let this empire, you know, run roughshod across the galaxy. And Han's like, all right, Chewie, damn it. Mm-hmm. You're always talking me into this kind of stuff. Yeah. Why did I think taking you home for life day was going to be easy? <laughs> You know, so, <laughs> right. so that's organic storytelling and, and, and that is story of, of course, but, but, but the plot convenience involved in this person has to know this person and had to show up at this time. And the, the assassin happens to be there right when the bad guy for no reason whatsoever marches all those scientists out there. And like you said, kills the loyal ones mm-hmm. and then threatens Galen by saying, well, see, look what I did to the ones who were loyal. Imagine what I'll do to you. Well, do whatever you want at this point, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Kill me then. What what does Galen have to live for at this point? And and honestly, what did he have to live for to even continue to make the Death Star? If he was such a brilliant scientist to make the Death Star, he could have just made something that as soon as you turn the thing on, it would explode. Rather than building something that requires an entire rebellion with a spaceship to fly. Like 
that that plan doesn't make any yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> You're not wrong. Because You're if not because wrong. again, if he is smart enough, if he is smart enough to build the Death Star, and yeah, there's a couple other scientists involved who happen to have loyalties or whatever, and it's supposedly he's pigeonholed that he has to do something that tricks everybody. One of those guys still had to have been, and I, I believe it was Galen, the Einstein of the group, who could have rigged something up. He could have, hell, he could have just sacrificed himself at some point and built a friggin' bomb in there. And it's like, okay, we're going to test the laser. Kaboom! Yeah. And blew himself up along with those other scientists and any progress they'd made. And then the Empire's left to, you know try again without all of them yep because uh, you're not wrong don't make me rethink my love of this film now (laughs) hey and and i'm telling you though i'm I'm just this is what i just did not like about it but that i have now allowed myself to look past yeah and i can enjoy the film for the parts like you said once you get past the first 15 minutes once you get going Yes, there are some great scenes. K2SO is great. Um, it, th- there are some really neat things. Like I did I did like the, the X-Wing attack. I like seeing Yavin. I like seeing uh, Bail Organa again and seeing some of the other leadership of the rebellion. And, and there are some, some neat parts to this film. And yes, I can really get into that final battle in Scarif, both on the planet and in space. Um, so, yeah. Um, and if, oh, go ahead. I, one of the other reasons this movie has a soft spot for me, just to make, kind of bring together why I, I, maybe why I'm more fond of it than maybe I should be and why I accept a lot of this is because uh, it was released on December 16th of 2016. Oh, your birthday. No, but it was <laughs> one of the first, like, dates that I went on with my wife. We went to Aww. see the movie and we both love Star Wars and like one of the things that we bonded over and became friends over was Star Wars and the fact that we got to go see this movie together as a couple was like a little more meaningful. So I think that was another part of why I loved it so much. Uh and I wouldn't say loved it so much. I liked it in the theater. But like I said, seeing it more after has made me really love it. But I think there's part of that nostalgia in it with my relationship. Sure, right. The movie it means more to you than yep. the movie because you you have because see like the same thing with Rise of Skywalker. I walked out of every other Star Wars movie with a laundry list of complaints. That one because it was me, my cousins, my friends, uh, some other family. There were, I think, 12 of us went and saw that on opening day. It was a big group of us. And then we went out afterwards and uh, and had uh, lunch and everything. I have positive, fond memories of Rise of Skywalker because of that, except that the movie is complete garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sorry that you have any positive remembrance of that. <laughs> but, but see, but see, so I can understand where you like, you have a positive memory of that experience, but not necessarily because the movie was necessarily that good, but, but here, so now let me speak of the two parts. And I'm sure you feel in the same way that make 
Rogue One for me super entertaining. The number one, the best part, and I wish the movie would have had more of this, and I wish there was just more movies in general that did this, the Darth Vader fight at the end. Mm -hmm. Watching Darth Vader in action, because you never really see Vader in action. No. He, 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 he has a couple of lightsaber battles with Luke. He fights Obi-Wan, but that Obi-Wan battle is very, very old school by today's standards, especially, you know, when you see what they all did with the prequels, the Jedi's flipping and jumping and throwing the saber and all that. And Luke and, or I mean, Ben and Vader are having this very professional (laughs) (laughs) duel, you know, um, and then, and then, you know, the fight with Luke in in Empire, which I would say is probably the best fight in the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even I think that beats even the Return of the Jedi battle because that was, I mean, it really wasn't even much of a battle no. at a certain point. Luke just went bananas. <laughs> yeah. But you don't get to see Vader do so to see Vader like using the Force and like Force choke, Force throw, doing going berserk with that that saber. And to see how close he really was to have just got the plans back right at that moment, that to me, more than any other part of this movie, makes me really feel like, wow, Vader really did, quote unquote, like fail there, you know? That that was a Vader failure to not get those plans back because that's what allows the new hope to happen. And then the downfall of the rebellion and everything. So, so, but, but to watch him in action there was great. Um, yeah. Agree. Disagree. I, I completely agree. Um, did you know that the two Vader scenes that were put in the movie were part of the reshoots? Um, and we didn't really talk about this yet, but Gareth Edwards had made the film and then there were scheduled reshoots as there are on every, almost every film, but definitely every big budget Disney film from Star Wars to Marvel to just, you know, Disney live action films, there are always scheduled reshoots. And so the scheduled reshoots here, usually reshoots are like a week to two weeks, even maybe a couple days. But this, I think they did like six weeks of reshoots because the final film that Gareth had put forward wasn't what Disney wanted. So Tony Gilroy came in and punched up the script and added a couple scenes and changed the the way the film ended, which you can see some of the differences in the original trailer for Rogue One versus yes. the final concept that we got. Because Yeah, that TIE that fighter tie fighter and getting in Jin's face. Oh, oh man, gone. that TIE fighter was so cool, and I was waiting to see that that sequence. Mm-hmm. And it just has never seen the light of day. And even now, because of the film and the controversy around the making of it and the reshoots, I don't think we'll ever see what that scene originally was supposed to look like. But um, the Darth Vader sequences were put in the script by Tony Gilroy and then shot specifically for, like, specifically to punch up Rogue One. And I'm very glad they did because it is probably the best, if not second best sequence in the entire movie at the end. I didn't like the the middle scene 
with Vader and Krennic, where he does the weird force choke and they're on uh, Mustafar. I didn't like that because that did feel shoehorned in. It would have been, in my opinion, much, much better to hold off and show Vader at the end. I also uh, agree. Very shoehorned in. It, it really did not fit. It made no sense. Vader wants to have this talk with me real quick. That that did not, he didn't need to go to Mustafar for that. That no. should have been a hologram. Yep. And, uh, but, but here is why I like that scene. For as much as I completely agree, it didn't make any sense in that part of the film and you didn't need it. What it does for me is it actually marries Hayden Christensen and James Earl Jones for me. Why? Because he had that stupid joke? You, well, yes, the stupid joke. <laughs> because because Vader, James Earl Jones's Vader, is the most serious, awful, bad guy in the universe. Like, I, I've had dreams where I've had to fight Darth Vader, and I wake up like, oh my gosh. That mm-hmm. he's still to this day, I have dreams <laughs> that Vader shows up and I have to fight him, and that is scary to me because he is just such an evil dude, and you wouldn't want to run into him in a back alley, you know? Right, right. But then that's all wiped away when you know that who's really under that suit? Oh, a whiny pod racing kid, and then a love struck dumb teenager. Like, those two Vaders never made sense to me. I never, even for as as angry as Anakin got in, in uh, Revenge of the Sith, I still never saw Vader. I still saw the whiny teenager. Yeah. You know? And, like, when did he become this badass? And, and that scene marries the two because of the dumb joke... And not even the dumb joke of uh, don't choke on your aspirations. The joke, and I, I guess it's not necessarily a joke as much as it's a sarcasm. Director Krennic. Lord Vader. You seem unsettled. No, just pressed for time. There's a great many things to attend to. My apologies. You do have a great many things to explain. I delivered the weapon the Emperor requested. I deserve an audience to make certain that he understands its remarkable potential. Its power to create problems has certainly been confirmed. A city destroyed. An Imperial facility openly attacked. Was Governor Tarkin suggested the test? You were not summoned here to grovel, Director Krennic. No, it's... There is no Death Star. The Senate has been informed that Jeddah was destroyed in a mining disaster. Yes, my lord. I expect you not to rest until you can assure the Emperor that Galen Erso has not compromised this weapon in any way. So I'm still in command? You'll speak to the Emperor about
Be careful not to choke on your aspirations, Director. <laughs> says you, you've all you've demonstrated is is it causes trouble right and and that to me felt like an anakin snarky line like you'd hear him mutter in the clone wars when he's like kind of mad at ahsoka and ahsoka's like well but master i managed to do this all you managed to do was get us into more trouble see that that yep. to me really felt like anakin but then i also felt like the James Earl Jones version of Vader was present an mm -hmm. ominous character. You don't mess with. And I was like, I, I, it was a shoehorned in scene, but it, it did something for me that I didn't think I would ever get in star Wars is how does whiny Anakin become badass Vader? And, and I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It didn't need to be done on Mustafar. <laughs> right that could have been that could have been done through the hologram i don't know if i would have got the closure i needed out of it if i wouldn't have seen it the way we saw it in the movie i don't know if you could have had those same lines through the through the hologram and then that combined with vader at the end i might have been like "Ooh, all right this is how anakin became vader for real yeah but but seeing it that way i that's that's my that is honestly my favorite takeaway of this is that I now understand where whiny Anakin became <laughs> kind of violent Vader, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was amazing that that whole final sequence, the frenetic pace of it and the, the sheer terror from the rebels running through that are just looking at certain death, all of them looking at certain death to get these plans to Leia. It's, it's honestly, it, it does tie the movie up in like the perfect bow. So no matter how you feel about Rogue One, you love that end sequence from the sheer just animosity of Vader, terror from the rebels, and the fact that the plans make it to Leia. Yeah. So speaking of Leia, we can't talk about this movie without talking about the CGI of Leia and Admiral Tarkin. So tell me what you thought about those two things, because Tarkin came first in the movie and when when I say that I liked the movie in the theaters, there are two things I didn't, well, three things I didn't like. The horrible pacing of the first about 15 minutes of the film, the Vader sequence, and then Tarkin with his dead eyes and odd CGI replacement. Maybe it's just that the, the scenes that they had from Tarkin that they used to reconstruct these sequences are all from 1977 <laughs> so maybe that was just more difficult for them to do but wh what did you think about both Tarkin and Leia? Uh, Leia was a great big surprise and I thought that was really well done. Tarkin I didn't mind because that's that's the problem right if you're going to go back and tell these stories in time with people who are no longer around um what, what are you going to do? It doesn't make sense to not have them in it because they would have been a major player in all of this, right? If you, if you, you couldn't make Rogue One without Tarkin being involved, I suppose you could have just like said, we had a communique from uh, Governor Tarkin. We had a communication, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe just done a hodgepodge hologram of him. Yeah. 
you know, that way you don't necessarily notice that he's not really real. Um, you, you could have done a few other things, but considering again, that this movie takes place, like if you think about it, it took them 15 years to build this death star, at least 15 years to build this death star. And the whole thing is destroyed in a week. Yeah. From when it's finally like, finished. Yep. From, from when it's finally finished, the plans that get out and like all of that happens, like <laughs> you don't realize how small of a time frame like Star Wars really is until you throw Rogue One in there and you're like, geez, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, like there was no like multiple attempts to get the plans. There was no, well, we managed to get this piece of it. We managed to capture this guy. It's like, nope, we had everything we needed. And then we found Obi-Wan Kenobi and we did all of this. How long did that take? A couple days. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so so to not have Tarkin in it might have felt weird. Yeah. Um, because obviously his it was his, as far as we're concerned in Star Wars, it was his project. Yeah. You know, because Vader even tells Tarkin, you know, don't be proud of this technological uh, terror you've constructed. You know, the Force is the true power of the galaxy, and right. Vader and Tarkin smartly just kind of drops that. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like when your uh, your zealot friend just goes off, and you're just like, "Yep, yep, yeah, I know. <laughs> yep, 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 yep." You know, not gonna not gonna argue with you again about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so proud of this technological terror. I know, Vader. You're right. The Force. I get it. I get it. I know. Anyway. So, so to that end, you, you, it, you kind of feels like it's his project. So yeah. you had to have him um, because you can't just throw in, but really it was this Krennic guy. Well, where was Krennic in, you know what I mean? Yep. You have to explain why Krennic then isn't in Star Wars. Yeah. Because otherwise, anyway. And, and so it's good. It's good that they made Tarkin like Krennic's direct boss, because then that line doesn't not mean what it, you know, if you take Rogue One at face value, that line in A New Hope doesn't make any sense. But the fact that they did have Tarkin come see him and talk to him and tell him, you have messed some things up and I'm taking over completely. I think that was good. I think it, it helped yes. to make sure that A New Hope didn't feel incorrect. Like some of the things that happened with the prequels made... <laughs> some character decisions in a new hope and beyond not make sense. Right. Exactly. I don't think, I mean, I know you said that Tarkin could have been a hologram, but there's just no way to get the weight of what he had to do to Krennic and to get control. It had to be in person. So I get it. I just, everything well, was fine way, except yeah. for his eyes. I just didn't like the eyes. I didn't mind it. I thought they did a, a, a fine enough job with it. And I was actually engaged every time he was on the screen because, you know, he's such a cool yeah. character he's that you really, yeah. You don't and, get to spend a and, lot of time with him, but he, he has, I mean, Peter Cushing has weight. Exactly. Right? In, in A New Hope, he's only in it for probably 20 minutes total, right? But he Jeez, is, if that. if that, yeah, but he is a force to be reckoned with and you can tell that in the movie. And so having him here, it's, it's awesome. It's great. Like I said, it's just the CGI 
isn't where it probably needed to be. Just quick sidebar on Peter Cushing. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, there's quotes from uh, Carrie Fisher talking about the filming of the original uh, Star Wars and what she thought. And mm -hmm. uh, like, what, did, what was it like working with Peter Cushing? She's like, oh, he's the sweetest, kindest man. He was super nice. And he was always like, you know, when the camera would roll, he was, you know, very into it. And then when the camera was off, you know, he was just the greatest guy. And she said he was always, um, because he was older at the time, he he wore slippers. <laughs> he would ask George, he'd be like, you know, are we doing anything where I need to be wearing my shoes? Are you going to see my full body? And he's like, no, we're just doing waist up. Uh, and he's like, okay. And he put his slippers on. <laughs> and so Carrie Fisher is like this man who's growling at me, you know you want another target, a military target, then name the system. And he's wearing these slippers. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was just such a funny thing. So oh, that's anyway. good. we've talked about the, the wills before in past episodes, but we haven't even touched on it yet here. And this is where it's actually making its, its feature film debut. Any thoughts on, on the wills? Yeah, it's just lore. I don't know. It doesn't impress me. It doesn't make me, Okay. anything okay yeah it just sort of touched on it just enough that there's it still seems like it's not fully fleshed out do you have any thoughts on it no i just think that it's it's yeah it's cool an mention. interesting way it's cool it's an interesting way to tie that part of the lore that i guess they've had in books before to film so that people may ask questions and go research but right it's, like one of the original drafts of star wars what's called the journal of the wills right skipping around but just touching on things that we didn't quite talk about the cgi monster thing that sucks your memories and can tell if you're telling the truth <laughs> yeah. again another plot convenience here yeah because that's why when they're in the cells and they see Bodhi and they're like oh hey he's not just like i'm the pilot are you guys here for me he's got to be all drugged up or whatever and right. out of it because of the mind suck thing and that's yeah. all that was that that didn't that just didn't make any sense to me yeah you know you, you and, and especially that they had to throw in such a honestly that was terrible cgi on that thing yeah yeah it was that was rotten yeah i didn't i didn't like really anything with saw Gerrera, i didn't really love because they took this really cool character from Clone Wars and Rebels. And sure, he, he gets more and more unhinged as the mm -hmm. the shows go on. Because in, in Clone Wars, spoiler alert, everybody who hasn't watched it, but in Clone Wars, his sister dies pretty early on when you meet them. And so he starts getting a little extreme because his sister died. And it just continues. And so in Rebels, he's even more extreme. And then... Um, in the new video game that came out, uh, what, two years ago now, the Star Wars um, Jedi Fallen Order, he's in that in a very brief scene. And it is, I'm pretty positive it's Forrest Whitaker's voice, but he's in it very briefly and he's even more crazy because it is taking place between uh, episode three and episode four, which at this point, you know, we first meet him as a younger man during Clone Wars, so he's probably 20-ish years older. Um, 
but the the fact that he Forrest Whitaker plays it so crazy just was a little off putting to me. Yeah. It yeah, I agree. Everything he it, not everything. He did have a few sympathetic parts where I was like, "Oh, well see that's that was if we had him more like that mm-hmm. through the whole thing, like a sad, defeated but still a little angry." Yeah. Um, but not full-blown crazy. Um, and then, uh, sorry, just skipping around because it does involve Saw's people. I did like that ambush on the troop transport. Mm -hmm. That was some great, again, that's, that's up there with the X-Wing attack. That was very, very cool cool to see outside of Star Wars again, you know, or I mean, outside of the original stuff, you know, no lightsabers, just this is, this is really a rebellion. And uh, I really enjoyed that. That was a great sequence there. And they had enough kind of cool creatures to make it feel like a galaxy and not just, you know, like in the original trilogy, it's mainly just humans. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, there's a few creatures here and there, but, yeah, but yeah, everybody's, no, I, I get basi- basically everybody's bipedal and kind of one dimensional, you know, as, as far as that's concerned, you know, they're, they're you know, the even Akbar, right? He all he's he's just got a fish head, but he still has basically arms and legs like humans, you know. Right. They 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 there was a limitation obviously back then for the way they were doing it. Yeah. Um yeah. but at least Saw's people had enough distinctness that even though most of them were still bipedal humanoid types, they they felt diverse enough. Yes. You know. Completely like, they felt galactic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like a band of misfits from different planets that we're all following saw that transport scene like i kind of mentioned before that's where we first meet churrit and Baze, and just everything with churrit i love the way he takes out all those stormtroopers this blind guy with a staff who has just studied the journal of the wills and the jedi for so long that he truly trusts the force he's he must be slightly force sensitive but not enough to be a Jedi. It's just very, very cool to see them come into that sequence too, because the, the battle is now the transport is stopped and now it's just stormtroopers coming after them and they just kick ass. Yeah. One thing I want to just completely call out. I think, I think maybe a lot of people might agree with me and maybe you will too, but the score for this movie that Michael Giacchino created Having to follow John Williams, one of arguably, if not the best composer yeah. in film history, with one of the most iconic scores of all time with, with any Star Wars score, and just have to weave parts of John Williams' music in, but also create something so new that it stands on its own, is is amazing and beautiful. That in my opinion, the Jin Erso and Hope Suite is probably the top three star wars score pieces of music for me i can i can see that it's beautiful and sad it weaves in every emotion you're feeling about this film and still makes it sound like star wars without it sounding like a ripoff of john williams star wars and i will say giacchino is more versatile than any composer that i've heard in again in my opinion and I'm pretty much a score whore where, to relax, I will listen to movie scores. 
And I just think that he's done so many different things and he truly will be, when when John Williams does eventually pass on, I think Giacchino will be the heir apparent to the iconic movie scores that will come in the future. I, I agree. That was that was good music. I mean, because it's Star Wars, I want to hear the familiar themes at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it's weird to me to have a film that doesn't start out with. Dun, 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 yep. dun, dun, dun. It was a little hard, right? When the movie they do a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then it goes, bump. Yeah. And then it's it doesn't give you what you expect. It was a little jarring. Because it's still a Star Wars movie. I get that it's not. Mm -hmm. But like, so the Star Wars theme is regulated to trilogies only? No, but the intro, I guess, is. Is to episodes. That's what I mean. The The intro of Star Wars music. Yeah. Yeah. But he does have the theme weave through. And then at the end of the movie, um, during the credits the end credits of Star Wars weaves in as well. So it's it's all there. It's just done in very tasteful ways, paying homage to John Williams rather than copying John Williams. And I, I that's one of the things I love about the score. Got it. You know, and it's very similarly to how I felt when listening to Phantom Menace because the Anakin theme is another beautiful melancholy piece of music that John Williams wrote that towards the end there's the Imperial March suite weaved in very very subtly and in the background just with violin and no other instrument and it is beautiful and so I feel like Giacchino did something kind of similar to that with the ways he weaved Star Wars themes into this score but that's neither here nor there I'm going way too long on on the score. No, but no, it but it was beautiful. It was but great. But that's what makes that's what makes these movies, you know, it's it's definitely an integral part if you had like that's why I mean so many of the best scenes from the original trilogy, gosh, I can hear the music. You know, yeah. as soon as you yeah. say the scene, you know, like Luke, uh the Battle of Sarlacc Pit, dun, dun, mm-hmm. like just kicking in, right? And then yep. the end of Empire. Right, racing, you know, at once oh, you yeah. meet Bespin, the the violins and the strings, that just that's such tension building music. But mm-hmm. anyway, yep. flying through the yep. asteroid field, all of that. <laughs> One thing I didn't mention is that it was budgeted at two hundred million, but. It went up to, we think, about $265 million, but I don't think anybody really knows because of the reshoots. But it grossed over a billion dollars. So if there was anybody thinking that this movie didn't need to be made, people went to see it. So they should keep making these, but they're not after Solo, so we'll talk about that someday. Well, that's um, kind of... Why, and, yeah, the, well, why do that? Why have one that makes a billion dollars and one that, uh, unless Solo lost that billion... <laughs> No, it it didn't. It still made money, but it wasn't as much of a success. And Disney then took a pause to see 
where they wanted to move next. And we are going to get another Star Wars story in 2023 or 2024, which is going to be Rogue Squadron, I believe, directed by Patty Jenkins from Wonder Woman fame. Uh, but we'll, we'll see if they actually dub that a Star Wars story or if now that the episodic Star Wars movies are over, if they start titling them differently. Oh, we'll cool. see. So... Patty, Patty Jenkins is doing Rogue One, maybe, uh, or doing Rogue Squadron. Rogue Squadron. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe Wedge Antilles will use somebody else's body to uh, have a romantic affair. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right, so we've gone we've gone pretty long on this, and I I have to ask Eric, did Rogue One ruin your childhood? No, no, it filled in a piece that I personally didn't need filling in like how they got the plans was nothing that I ever really, really was like, but wow, because it, it just always seemed like, you know, somebody broke into a computer somewhere and whatever. And to, and, and honestly to build an entire story around it is where we ran into, I think all the problems that, that we sort of already went over that you had to go to all these locations. Yeah. And then, and then you, I, I think they made a big mistake to, to build in the fact that there was already a flaw because that was just to create this father-daughter situation about why would anybody design a Death Star? I think you could have just, I mean, if there's a Darth Vader, there could have been just an equally evil person technologically advanced who wanted to build a Death Star to support the Empire. I mean, Tarkin was all about it. Krennic was all about it. They just didn't have the means. They, they were the project managers. The other guys, uh, Right, you know, right. were the uh, the brains. So I, I just think they went awry um, trying to build in a flaw and take that away from the rebels that they found what was their only hope, which was literally the name of Star Wars, A New Hope. And that hope was, if we could pull off this crazy attack, here we go. And that I feel that yeah. undercuts the first movie by saying they didn't find anything. They were given a small chance but that's just me yeah anyway ruin the childhood no give me more star wars uh sure i'll i'll watch crummy star wars movies uh from now until forever yep me too didn't ruin my childhood honestly as as we've all heard through me talking about it i've grown to actually love it if i were to rank them it would be number four right now it, it goes up and down or not up but it goes down from four uh, when I'm thinking about other films or, or in a mood, but uh, it generally sits around number four. Uh, so it didn't ruin my childhood, made me care about characters that I didn't really need to care about, and really hit me emotionally every time I watch it at the end of the film when they all start passing and then Vader comes out as a badass. Um, the last 30 minutes from Scarif until the end is just great great star wars storytelling all right well with that being said eric where can people find you uh people can find me at eric underscore walensky on instagram um and they can also find me at mr mist mask m-i-s-t-e-r-m-i-s-s-e-d-m-a-s-k on instagram uh where i've taken pictures of all of these masks that have flown around and become garbage um and uh and i write little poems about them it is quite an entertaining instagram feed so everybody should go check it out 
And for me, you can find me at Fildimo, F-I-L-D-I-M-O, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also follow the podcast at Podcast Ruined on Twitter and Instagram. With all that being said, we hope that this look back at Rogue One did not ruin your childhood. Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood. Why does she get a blaster and I don't? Where'd you get it? I found it. I find that answer vague and unconvincing. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. Let's get going. It's very high. You'll need this. You wanted one, right? Your behavior, Genesso, is continually unexpected. No, I mean, seriously, the, no, even to I, the original. I get it, and I can hear it when you say it, and then you start the, humming it. The I Jawa can, I mean, theme, it's right? Iconic. The oboes mm-hmm. in the Jawa theme. Mm-hmm. that wah sound while they're walking around the desert yep. it just sounds like walking around the desert music <laughs> <laughs> oh, i should have had that playing when i was up in uh in utah on hikes in the desert yeah